to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm joined by Sarita Ashraf, international criminal barrister who's currently consulting for the Center for Justice and Accountability and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Center for the Prevention of Genocide. Thank you for joining us today, Sarita. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. Um, You have extensive experience in documenting and investigating atrocity crimes throughout your career. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what that experience uh, has been to this point? And um, I think I'll, I'll talk to you a little bit more later about what goes into investigating potential atrocity crimes. Yes, of course. Um, I am a barrister called to the Bar of England and Wales and also the Bar of Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm from. Um, Very early on in my career, I was lucky enough to end up working in Sierra Leone in 2003, which is really shortly after um, the war had ended when the um, DDR demobilization rehabilitation process was, disarmament rehabilitation process was still ongoing. Um, And I joined a defense team, um, the SESE defense team before the special court for Sierra Leone. And that started a a time when I I became counsel at trial and appeals level um, in this trial, which extended over six years in in Sierra Leone, during which time I was largely based in Freetown, which was a tremendous experience, not only on um, understanding how international law plays out on the ground, um, how these trials are put together, um, but also really um, uh, living in a place where, where people who've been affected by um, by these crimes, which you know have have taken up so much kind of academic space and thought space amongst those of us who are fortunate fortunate enough to live outside of conflict. Um, conflict-ridden areas. Um, uh, after Sierra Leone, I went off and I did a variety of other things, including working for the Commission of Inquiry on Libya immediately after um, um, Gaddafi's regime fell in Libya, and then into um, working on Syria, the Commission of Inquiry in Syria, where I was the chief legal analyst from 2012 to 2016. Um, so throughout a bulk of the, the very intense hostilities, and I think my experience of working on Syria really has continued. I've never really left um, working on Syria. Um, after um, after working with the COI, I did a very short stint helping set up the Syria mechanism um, before uh, moving to consultancies and then to UNITAD. So UNITAD was set up by the Security Council, um, I think largely as a result of a lot of advocacy of Yazidi groups. And it's set up specifically to um, collect, um, analyze, and preserve evidence of um, the crimes of the Islamic State in Iraq. Um, and so for that, I was in Baghdad and then later on um, in Duhok, um, helping with investigations, um, not only in relation to the Yazidis, but um, across the whole span of ISIL crimes uh, occurring mainly in, in, in northern Iraq. 
um, since then, I've been doing consultancies, as you mentioned. So I'm now a senior legal consultant for the Center for Justice and Accountability out in California, still doing a lot of work on case building efforts on Syria and Iraq. Um, and uh, and with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Simon Scott Center for the Prevention of Genocide, where we look at situations of emerging genocides or already documented genocides. And that can span anything from um, looking at um, uh, the Hazara in Afghanistan, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, um, uh, what is happening in Myanmar, and of course, continuing to monitor some of the allegations being made around Ukraine. So it's, it's, it's been quite diverse. So I've been very lucky. What is the process um, that goes into investigating potential atrocity crimes? I think what's interesting to me about your career is that you've looked at situations where you've actually had access to the country and, and to where the conflicts have taken place, as well as situations like Syria, where the government is is hostile to the commission of inquiry, and you're probably investigating from the outside all the time. I would say that it's definitely shifted in, in my career, and I'm not massively, you know, into my career, so it's shifted in a, a relatively um, short space of time in, in two ways. One is kind of mechanically, and the other is, I suppose, in the attitudes or the approaches that are taken. From a more kind of pragmatic basis, there was really this understanding at the beginning that still, I think, exists that the way that you investigate crime is just you go out and you speak to people. And and that's still very much the case. Speak to survivors, speak to witnesses, emphasize the need to um, ensure that those interviews are being done um, respecting confidence, but also more recently deepening into this idea of what what has become almost like a, a kind of... Um, a cliched phrase of trauma-informed survivor-centered interviewing, but really kind of digging into what that means. Um, uh, now, I think we there's this because of technology, because of the role of social media, but and and the the way for information to travel about not the crimes, how crimes are committed, but also in some ways how crimes are designed, orchestrated, how people are recruited to commit crimes, how people are indoctrinated to commit crimes. There's also now a much more of an emphasis on one, um, trying to collect um, open source information. So OSINT, um, OSINT investigations have become a much larger part. But beyond that, the question of how you analyze the information, because a lot of emphasis goes on investigations and collection of information. But now the the, the amount of information that you're collecting um, is, is enormous. If you look at the Islamic State, just the amount of output. If you look at the Syrian conflict, even if you try to look at all the videos of the Syrian conflict, I think it would probably exceed many human lifetime, <laughs> lifetimes. So it becomes this question of, we have all this information. How do you actually make sense of it? How do you find evidence of crimes from amongst almost like a a huge amount of, of static noise. How do you find what's valuable? And so that is one aspect that I think has changed in the investigation analysis of international crime. The other, which I think is just as important, or potentially I think for, for more important, and certainly for I think the survivor communities in the main more important, is that I think it went from being quite extractive, um, the approach um, very early on. I think it was changing already when I started, but very early on, on it was almost uh, like... Um, uh, internationals who had, you know, really interesting, um, you know, academic experience, training, parachuting in, collecting information, getting paid, that money immediately going to bank accounts, which are outside of the country involved and, and then leaving at the end. Um, and there was this kind of sense of capacity building, but the capacity building was very different from almost existed in a kind of adjacent field from the accountability driven work. 
now what we see are, are two things. One, there is a much bigger recognition, one of the importance of having people from the affected regions involved in investigations um, in a variety of ways, whether that's through outreach, whether that's through being actually inside investigation teams and some of the roles, having input into the design of the investigations. As part of that, there's been a really a rise in the understanding of the deep importance of civil society work and civil society documentation in, as part of international investigations and trying to figure out a way that that can work within what are often very confidential investigations done by units like, for example, UNITAD or the IIIM for Syria or even the ICC. Um, the second the second part of that is that there has been this uh, greater understanding of um, the need for a more intersectional approach. So what I often call a gender competent intersectional approach. So, you know, the mechanics of the investigation affect the substance of the investigation. If the investigators one come from a, a dominated by a particular group, say white male investigators from Canada, that's going to have an impact on what the investigation looks like. It's not just a matter of diversity, though, because I think sometimes just pinning intersectional approaches with the diversity of the, of who's doing the work, it's important, but it's one part of it. The other part is just understanding um, how crimes are committed against different people in different ways and the impact of marginalized intersecting identities um and so some so, so i'll give you an example of something that really was only noticed off after the fact which is in the civil war in colombia which i did not have any work on at all but uh, do any work on at all um you saw high rates of sexual violence across uh, across uh, across the conflict but it you know it became apparent that actually in areas where you had indigenous communities um and, and against women who are of afro-colombian descent you had even higher rates of sexual violence and so i think there is now not this idea of a crimes can be committed we go in and understand it but saying like contextually how do the underlying inequalities prejudices um biases in that society affect how the crimes are designed, how they are committed, what their impact is against different groups in a way that obviously um, gender tends to be a primary prism. I think it's important that it, it is a primary prism in many ways, but it's also now looking at beyond gender, like how gender and race, ethnicity, religion, age, for example, interplay so that we don't end up with uh, an, an understanding of an investigation plan, an investigation plan implementation strategy that ends up with um, an understanding of crimes which is not just male-centric but often adult-centric which often then just in excludes and renders invisible whole portions of the victim and survivor community so i would say that is um, another really big change and a really um, i think profoundly important and also very exciting change because it's ushered in conversations which i think a lot of people didn't know were needed, and I think we continue to undercover to, to, to kind of uncover how important um, these different viewpoints are, and, and how to how we can better how we can improve the way in which we're relating to survivors and victims, including survivors and victims, but even seeing survivors and victims. Absolutely. I think that's an incredibly important shift in the right direction, um, not just for accountability and, and survivors and victims, but also, you know, when we think about prevention in other situations, like the 
the wealth of knowledge you're getting on the nuance in situations now can inform how we think about prevention in the future, um, which is really um, important in these situations. We, we see that, of course, most um, most viscerally when it comes to genocide, because the Genocide Convention has within it this legal duty to to prevent genocide. And if you cannot um, if you cannot recognize genocide and cannot see the full spectrum of genocidal acts, genocidal and the and the full you know community of genocide victims, then you're really not going to be able to prevent or to punish it in any way that is um, full and meaningful for everyone who's been um, affected. Absolutely. You know, to go back to to some of the experiences you've mentioned in your career, you you noted that through both the Commission of Inquiry in Syria and your work with UNITAD, uh, you looked at the the crimes against the Yazidis. I was wondering if you could share a bit about the crimes perpetrated by the Islamic State across Iraq and Syria against the Yazidi population and other minorities. And, you know, what went into the Commission of Inquiry's genocide determination? The Commission of Inquiry in Syria was mandated by the Human Rights Council to look at violations of international law inside Syria. Obviously, the initial attack by ISIL against the Yazidi community happened in northern Iraq, where the majority of the Yazidi community um, were based. Um, but by, I would say, late August, early September 2014, so really weeks after the initial attack, which occurred on the 3rd of August 2014, um, we were seeing in the Syrian inquiry um, from Syrians who were fleeing areas that were then held by the Islamic State, kind of um, really uh, information about events and uh, that we hadn't heard before. And that was specifically around this idea that ISIL was convening slave markets, that there were people being sold, women and children being sold in these areas. Um, and that basically allowed, it opened the door for the Commission of Inquiry in Syria to look at what was happening inside Syria with, with, with in relation to the ZD population. Um, my first... Um, hearing of the Yazidi population did not occur in the context of ISIS. It was I was in Iraq for investigations in relation to Syria um, a year before ISIL even emerged um, in emerged visibly in Iraq. Obviously they were there, but in terms of had come to had been able to seize territory in Iraq. And we were driving with a driver who was actually from um who was an from um an Arab Christian community. Um, really a driver and we were driving past these villages and he turned to me and said oh you know do you see those villages over there in the mountain and I said yes he goes oh the people in those villages worship the devil and it just goes to show I mean these Yiddies I said obviously I should say at the outset do not worship the devil but um and would be horrified by and, and are continually horrified by this um, misconception of what is an incredibly peaceful and beautiful religion but it goes to show like the depth of the prejudice, the misunderstanding, the misconceptions of this very small religious group. And also the it, it gives you an inkling into the repeated historical persecution and the modern day discrimination that they faced. And so when ISIL comes about, when ISIL um, um, emerges, and, and it doesn't drop from the scene, there's a long history of ISIL with links back for, to to ISI, Islamic State in Iraq, to Al-Qaeda in Iraq, to the insurgency which followed the American invasion, and even in amongst the senior members of ISIL, the Ba'ath Party. So I always think it's, it's really important to understand ISIL 
as a as not just this group that is incredibly brutal and appeared and wants to return um, the world to the seventh century, the world in which they lived to the seventh century, but they build very much on the prejudices that were already in Iraqi society and in fact in other other areas where Yazidis exist in Syrian society, um, in Turkish society. So um, when it comes to the CY Syria, we were really tipped off initially by these mentions of slave markets in Syria. And this led to essentially a full-scale investigation which focused on Yazidi women, mainly Yazidi women, um, uh, who were taken into, into Syria. And that uncovered um, what we found in the June 2016 report was not simply that ISIL had committed multiple crimes against humanity and war crimes, but also that they had committed genocide against this group um, through um, really the commission of all five genocidal acts. Um, The one thing that I would say is that when it comes to ISIL, they are unusual as a perpetrator in some senses um, because they really do not try to hide or reframe their conduct. So a lot of genocidal groups will say, you know, might say, oh, it was a war and people got killed or they were attacking us or we, they were, you know, they, they essentially reframe, reframe it to indicate like we weren't, we had no genocidal intent. It was just chaos, right? It was just, uh, with ISIL, that's not true. ISIL was very across the board, whether it comes to the attacks on the Shia, when it comes to attacks on the Christians, um, and when it comes to attacks on the Yazidis specifically, um, they are very transparent about what they do and why they do it. Um, and that's partly because they believe it to be um, theologically sanctioned, but it's also because um, they are building upon very deep-rooted um, dislikes of these groups that long predate necessarily the, the organization itself, ISIL itself. So just to give a little bit of a summary of our ISIL's attack on the Yazidis, um, uh, which is one of the better known um, vi- vi- survivor communities of ISIL crimes. Um, on the 3rd of August, 2014, ISIL attacks the Sinjar region of Northern Iraq. Um, this is about just under two months after ISIL has taken control of Mosul city uh, on the 10th of June and Tel Afar on, on the 16th of June, 2014. At the time, they have been in control of Raqqa, which is the de facto Syrian capital, um, for some time. Um, in between, if you draw a straight, straight line between Raqqa and Mosul, um, it flows through precisely through the Sinjar region, which is the homeland of the majority of the world's Yazidi population. Um, the Yazidi population has been historically persecuted. Um, even today, there are some communities that will not, for example, buy food from Yazidis because they don't. They consider Yazidis, for example, to be unclean. So Yazidis have um, historically been marginalized. Uh, they are living in a very rural area without a tremendous amount of infrastructure. Um, they're also a very, um, in some ways, closed community because both parents need to be Yazidi for the children to be to be Yazidi and. Um, and that has resulted in a number of different different things, different consequences, one of which is that the women themselves are kind of kept close to the home. So often in the interviews you see women have been pulled out of school by 16 because their village probably doesn't have a secondary school. They don't want their um, female children to travel and potentially come into contact with other non-Yazidis. Um, so very limited um, female 
social and financial independence within the very rural Sinjar, Sinjar community, which, which is relevant to the impacts of, of the crimes that, that ISIL is about to commit. Um, ISIL um, pours into Sinjar very in, at about 2, 3 a.m. Um, on, um, on the thir- morning of the 3rd of August, 2014. Uh, Sinjar is divided into north and south with a mountain range in the middle of about 100 kilometers long Mount Sinjar, which has historically been um, a place of safety for Yazidis um, in previous attacks, um, including the 1915 Armenian genocide when Yazidis who were also attacked during that um, that genocide fled um, to see, seek safety on Mount Sinjar. Um, ISIL attacks in a very coordinated action. It has multiple units operating on both sides of the mountain. So it's not, there's very little military targets in the mountain. It became very clear that the targets of the attack were the Yazidi community. Um, it has also become clear that they were prepared to hold thousands of people. And when I say people, actually that disguises the fact they were prepared how thousands of women and children. Um, uh, in holding sites that were being um, prepared um, um, deeper within the territory of the caliphate. Um, and generally, attacks unfolded in a very um, uh, mechanical way, almost like a conveyor belt. In interviews that I did, probably after the fifth or sixth interview, it was very clear often what the next stage they were about to describe to me was. So kind of consistent was the, the kind of pattern of crimes that were still committed. In general, ISIL came in. If they captured um, Yazidis, they would separate the men and boys out. In some instances, the men and boys were um, killed um, almost immediately um, uh, uh, and often executed in front of their families or at least within earshot of their families in some cases. We've also documented a couple of instances where women who were past childbearing age were also taken away and executed a mass grave uh, filled with the remains of older women. Um, was found um, in southern Sinjar and has been excavated by the Iraqi government with the support of UNITAD a, a few months ago now. Um, for some men who were forcibly converted, who pretended to convert, they were then taken into a system of what was essentially a twilight zone of not quite being accepted as Muslims, but still um, not see, not treated as though they were fully Yazidi. And they were essentially enslaved. Um, they were kept in very specific locations, sometimes with their families, if their families were there, but they were being forced to go out to work um, to do what is very gendered, forced labor, building buildings taking care of cattle, um, working on construction. Um, and that continued until, for a few months until about the spring of 2015, when ISIL seems to have determined that the, those conversions were not real, possibly because Yazidis were escaping. Um, and those men disappeared. And it's been very difficult to find out what happened to those men after April 2015. Um, so they're still, the families will still refer to them as missing, but generally it is presumed that they were killed at that point. Um, for the women and girls, they had a much longer span of violations um, committed against them in captivity. Um, almost immediately, women and girl, women, girls and younger boys, um, so boys who were above the age of about 14, 13, 14, um, were often killed with the men um, if the men were killed at the time of capture. Um, and they were taken, the women and girls were, were taken away often to first a holding site in Sinjar for about 24 hours and then to holding sites in Tel Afra and Mosul where they were um, registered um, and then um, the majority of them were sold then to other ISIL fighters and entered a system of sexual enslavement. Um, 
Now, often when people hear about the Yazidis, the one thing that they will know is the system of sexual enslavement because it's something that was really focused on in the media. The Yazidi community also, the many of the advocates of female survivors of sexual violence, including Nadia Murad, who won obviously the Nobel Peace Prize. But in fact, um, I think it's really important that we don't reduce the experience of women in situations of mass trustee, uh, Yazidi women in this situation, but in general, I think across the board, women and girls as being just victims of sexual violence because they suffered um, enslavement as a whole, being forced to work in the homes of fighters, often aspects of torture and other inhumane acts in terms of being beaten, being starved, being denied medical treatment. Um, they often suffered um, kind of a, what I call a subcategory of sexual violence, which is reproductive violence, which is, you know, coined, I think, by Rosemary Gray, um, which is kind of forced pregnancies, in some cases, um, forced abortions, forced um, use of birth control, um, and really were treated as chattel, um, to the point where you could gift a Yazidi woman or girl, you could uh, put put them in your will and pass them along, uh, and so on. So that happened to girls, um, women and girls over nine. Um, uh, and then for boys, once they hit the age of about seven, they were then taken off to be indoctrinated and then um, forcibly recruited into ISIL forces. Um, so fully understanding what happened to young Yazidi boys has really only been possible um, more recently after the fall of ISIS in 2017, when a number of Yazidi boys were essentially found as ISIL forces were arrested and brought back. Uh, and, and obviously all surviving Yazidis um, have been highly highly traumatized, but the situation of Yazidi boys forced to fight with ISIS has attracted less attention and, and certainly fewer resources in terms of helping that particular community of, of Yazidis. I think that that really highlights what you were saying at the beginning about how important the that kind of shift towards intersectional approaches in investigations and justice. So much nuance in this situation comes from understanding how women, boys, girls, and men were treated so differently. And, and it's it's relevant to who they were as Yazidis, not just who they were by gender and um, and kind of the... The intersection, I mean, the violations very much pivot around um, gender and age, sex and age, really. Um, but I think it also highlights the fact that when we're speaking about gender crimes and understanding the role that gender plays in the design, the commission and the impact of crime, we're not only speaking about women and girls. Mm. One, we're also trying to notice how children are being rendered invisible by being grouped in with communities of, of adults, which, you know, even I will stop and have to say, like, no, we, I also mean older boys. No, girls are also being sold, um, that they're not just being erased because the impacts on children are different. The reasons why people target children can sometimes be different. But it also indicates that, you know, that men and older boys are being attacked specifically because of their gendered roles or their perceptions of their gendered roles. And there's reasons to why they are attacked in those ways. And that doesn't just go for the, the type of crime, right? It's not simply um, that men are being killed and this, these other stuff happened to women and, 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 and girls and younger boys. Um, it's also that actually, even if you're the victim of the same crime, that crime can be committed against you in different ways because of the identifiers which um, the perpetrators find most important. And gender is always one of those. I mean, gender permeates every aspect of human life. And it certainly um, 
permeates how crimes are committed and why they are committed and why they're designed in particular ways. So I'll, I'll give I'll give an, an, an example. I'll give two examples. One is one is um is, is Rwanda. So we're going all the way back now to the to the to the 90s. Um, where you have, um, you know, both obviously high rates of killing of men, the number of men killed in the Rwandan genocide effect, affected the sex ratio of Rwanda, I think still continues this day to to affect the sex ratio of, had it created it, it demographic changes to, to the entire community. But what we saw was that men were, were killed um, often with um, for example, with clubs, with with bullets, so horrific killings, um, but often quite swift. Whereas in the case of of um, um, female Tutsi victims, um, they were really um, affected by the propaganda that was put out about the Tutsis. So you had, for example, um, which which leveraged. Um, existing prejudices against um, Tutsi women. So in the anti-Tutsi propaganda in the Hutu supremacist publications, such as Kangura, which became the subject of the media trial um, in the ICR, um, you saw um, uh, Tutsi women being cast as believing themselves to be superior to Hutu women in beauty, in charm, and displaying an attitude of arrogance. Um, four of the 10 um, infamous Hutu commandments that were published in an edition of Kangura focused on the duplicity of Tutsi women. And it actually came up in the jurisprudence with the ICR um, in the media trial, the Nahiman trials, talking about the presentation of Tutsi women as femme fatales, focused particular attention on Tutsi women and the danger that they represented to the Hutu community. And that danger was explicitly associated with sexuality. So when women were attacked, um, this the scale and barbar the massive scale and barbarity of the of the lethal violence. So we're not talking just about sexual violence that people that women survived, but the lethal violence um, reflected not only kind of group hatred, but also it stood at the the intersection of group hatred and women hate and hatred, and it reflected the misogyny of the propaganda. So, um, as I said, Tutsi men were summarily executed at their homes, at places of refuge, such as churches, killed by machetes or nail-studded clubs. Horrible, horrible um, ways to die in particular. But a large number of women were murdered as a direct and intended consequence of brutal sexual violence and torture. So the methods uh, displayed the misogyny of the perpetrators and their need to humiliate and diminish Tutsi women and girls, and that included... Um, impaling them with objects, pouring boiling water on them, mutilating them by cutting off their breasts and women dying from blood loss. So everyone in the end has been murdered. The crime of murder has been committed and that crime may also be a, was in this case, constitutive acts of genocide. But the way that they're killed betrays a lot about what the perpetrator thinks of the victim and what they're trying to accomplish in that. More recently, um, and when it comes to the um, the Rohingya, um, the Global Social Center did a really interesting um, report um, about a legal analysis of gender crimes against the Rohingya, which came out in September of 2018. And there they had written that while Rohingya men were generally killed by gunshot, women and girls were stabbed, slashed, or burned means typically used um, when destroying objects and property. And it's that some of the, the knives used were knives that were generally used for killing animals um, uh, in slaughterhouses. So 
again, I think we see, we continually kind of learn and relearn how how gender, how age affect um, the types of crimes committed, but also how each crime tends to be committed. I'm glad you ended on that note because it speaks to something that I've struggled with for a long time. And I know I'm not alone here as the wider atrocity prevention community is grappling this with this as well. Uh, you're talking about the hatred of women and the misogyny of the perpetrators and the conscious choice to perpetrate crimes in a particular way. And what frustrates me is that we have evidence from Rwanda and the 1990s. We've talked on this podcast about atrocity situations even prior to that with Patricia Sellers and others about where there's been a gendered aspect to how atrocity crimes are carried out. So we have all this legal and investigative knowledge of the gender nature of crimes, but somehow still with all of that, decades of, of knowledge seem to lack either an understanding or a way to articulate to policymakers a causal link between hatred of women, misogyny within societies, restriction on women's or LGBTQ rights, gender-based persecution, and atrocity crimes. And I think when we speak about gender, and really not only gender, of course, like any sort of uh, marginalized identities, how they're impacted by and our ability to recognize them and see them as, 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 as full victims of crimes and even see the ways in which they've been victimized. The gender doesn't just affect what the perpetrators do. Gender really also dictates in many ways the international response and the response of lawmakers and policymakers um, to different crimes. And, and this is not necessarily... I think even an international criminal issue. I think the pull to recognizing when a crime has been committed, whether that's domestically or in a situation of mass atrocity under and has been and has been tackled under the rubric of international criminal law, the pull towards recognizing crimes when when um, when they are committed against through acts that disproportionately affect men, which disproportionately affect people that are valued more in society. It draws from the ser greater seriousness with which we view, investigate, and litigate crimes that happen to affect men more than women. That was a bit more of a complicated way of saying it. It was the simpler way of saying it is we are better at investigating crimes. We are better at uh, uh, litigating crimes. We have we expend more resources to do so if we consider the people that the crimes have been committed against to be valuable. That's And that happens domestically if you look at the kind of the current conversation in america you can see all around the questions around police violence this question of why are we not getting any traction when it comes to um police killings of kind of african-american victims but even within the community of african-americans you can see african-american women are still getting it's, it's still much more of a struggle to to invest, have those crimes investigated and, and, and litigated. And that has resulted in the Say Her Name um, campaign that comes out of Brianna Taylor. But even within an even smaller community, if you look at the rates of violence against, for example, um, uh, um, members of the um, transgender community, um, or even um, the whole panoply of the LGBT community. But if you look at particularly members of the transgender community who are of color in the States, which is, I mean, I'm sure it happens everywhere, but the stats that we have, um, have drawn out of the American experience, you can see like the idea that 
trying to get something properly investigated and then prosecuted um, is really difficult when the whole society does not really value the victims, but also has developed almost a greater tolerance um, for when violence happens to those victims. And so that translates very very directly into the situations of mass atrocity, that when it comes to some victims, if we see the value in them, we see the crimes against them. Um, And across the world, the one thing we can say is generally across the world is that women are not valued. Um, Women don't have uh, any commensurate political or economic power. They are massively victims of um, male violence. Um, In the UK this week, there have now been multiple um, situations of women being the victims of violence. It's become uh, a kind of a thing on Twitter just to screenshot the headlines, which are just indicating, you know, six bullet points of different stories about kind of women being attacked, often lethally. Um, and so I think when it comes to discussing policymakers, it's not just thinking about why does ISIL, you know, why is ISIL doing this to these minority groups, to these uh, to women and so on. It's also going well. How is how how are we when we are doing the investigations? What are what are what are we bringing to the table in terms of how we see these groups? And I think that also has to be true of policymakers. And until you get policymakers to go through that process of reflection, or you bring in and elect people, or have people promoted who are just more gender competent, um, have a, a better approach, then you're always going to, it's always going to be a bit of an uphill and often non-linear battle to get this taken seriously. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and we'd be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at www.globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.